You've got something which is sweet, something which is cute, which is, oh, hedgehogs are so lovely. Yet there is something much deeper in there, a deeper message and a deeper way of looking at the world. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Jennifer Skeen. European hedgehogs are perhaps the most beloved mammal in the United Kingdom. When the BBC Wildlife magazine ran a poll a few years back asking readers which species should be the national icon, hedgehogs triumphed. But these endearing, small, strange, slug-munching, spiky creatures, named for their pig-like noses and the hedgerows in which they thrive, are being destroyed across the country that holds them so dear. It's estimated that Great Britain's hedgehog population has dropped by 90 to 95% since the Second World War. Today, there are less than 1 million. Industrial agriculture has driven the loss of hedgerow habitat that long characterized the British countryside, while farms' use of pesticides is wiping out the insects that hedgehogs eat. Meanwhile, housing developments are breaking up habitat into smaller and more fragmented parcels, and motor vehicles every year mow down around 100,000 hedgehogs. That's about one hedgehog in every five nationwide. There are other smaller threats, too, that add up, from drowning in uncovered swimming pools to getting caught in litter rubber bands and fast food cups. In 2020, hedgehogs were listed as vulnerable to extinction in the next 20 years on the red list for British mammals. Tragically, they have a lot of company. More than 40% of UK species have seen their populations plummet in recent decades. But while the future of hedgehogs remains precarious, there is grounds for hope. Across Britain, people are turning their love for these creatures into action to try to save them, in significant, surprising, and delightful ways. Take the country's hedgehog highway, for example. Hedgehogs need up to 30 hectares worth of territory, the average size of an 18-hole golf course, to forage for food and find mates. But the average UK garden is just a tiny fraction of that size. The Hedgehog Street Project, launched 10 years ago, is an attempt to link these habitats by asking homeowners to put 13-inch diameter holes through their garden fences to give hedgehogs the pathways they need to survive. Nearly 14,000 such holes have since been created, linking entire neighborhoods and towns. This upswelling of attention, love, and effort for hedgehogs is thanks in no small part to the contagious enthusiasm, relentless obsession, vision, and passionate career-long commitment of our guest, ecologist and hedgehog expert Hugh Warwick. Hugh has studied, celebrated, written about, and fought to protect hedgehogs and other British wildlife for more than 30 years. He is the spokesperson for the British Hedgehog Preservation Society and the author of five brilliant books on British fauna, including most recently The Hedgehog Book and Linescapes, Remapping and Reconnecting Britain's Fragmented Wildlife, which explores the impacts of man-made lines, hedges, roads, power lines, canals, on the ability of wild animals to thrive. Hugh Warwick, welcome. Viveka and Jennifer, thank you so very much. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. You started studying hedgehogs over 35 years ago, and you once wrote, it's rare that an affair begun as a teenager lasts a lifetime, but I've been very lucky. How did that affair begin, and why do you love hedgehogs? Well... 
It's interesting. This, I mean, it, it, the relationship began. I would, I would, you know, couch it more. In, the relationship began earlier than the affair, as it were. Um, <laughs> so that that I was uh, studying as an ecologist. Uh, I was doing my degree. There was an opportunity for a third year project, which was actually a practical investigation into the impact of of hedgehogs on a small island uh, to which they'd been introduced in the 1970s, uh, and and the impact that these hedgehogs might be having on the breeding success of ground nesting birds. It was a straightforward ecological question, not a simple thing to answer. And uh, uh, that was my introduction to it. So that was back when I was still a teenager. But it was the realization that very little work was done looking at the day-to-day life of hedgehogs. I mean, loads of studies had been done on, on the hormonal fluctuations of hibernating hedgehogs, but the actual mundane stuff of the hedgehog, because it's not normally considered to be a form of a pest uh, or a game animal or something to eat normally, um, they, they've never really had much attention paid to them. Uh, this gave me the opportunity and, and made me realise partly because I think instinctively I'm both a coward and lazy. They don't travel too far and too fast and on the whole they don't bite you so so yeah, it, it, as, as an animal to study it's really not so bad well and of course they're they're not just beloved by you but are, are consistently britain's most popular animal why is this spiny kind of low to the ground snuffling critter so universally beloved it's interesting in, in your introduction you actually used the word perhaps uh, and i took umbrage i even made notes as you were doing that thinking <laughs> what do you mean perhaps the nation's favorite wild animal <laughs> really uh, yes i mean i i have i have my particular passion for hedgehogs and actually i i didn't finish answering your question about what happened to me and and yeah when did the when did the affair begin because you know there was uh, research and then that slipped and actually i have to lay the blame for that uh, um at the the four little feet of nigel and uh, Rather embarrassingly, I was doing a, a, a lecture, um, and, and in, in it I, I talked about this moment when my eyes met Nigel's as we lay together while I lay on, on a Devon lane. And that moment of connection really sowed the seeds of a relationship shifting from liking stuff to loving stuff. And I, I did. I fell, I felt a change in in our relationship unbeknownst to me that that one of my now uh, friends and colleagues in the audience is also called Nigel but anyway so that was a moment when i really felt a shift and this i think is is, is interesting is you know, when we talk about animals we tend to talk in in terms of liking things uh and and the love is often a bit of a light love and um i'm always drawn to um, your, your was he even a colleague of yours I'm not sure uh, Stephen Jay Gould I don't know where he worked which university uh, but Stephen Jay Gould wrote we will not fight to save what we do not love and you know, he's talking about conservation talking about our relationship with the natural world and that for me is absolutely crucial it takes that moment of stepping across this line between liking stuff and loving stuff to really really begin to feel the power you need to be able to to fight to save it and it's an enormous risk because obviously as soon as you start loving things you are opening yourself up to to the grief of loss so it's it's not a it's not a simple thing it, it can be it frequently is joked about oh Hugh he loves hedgehogs so yes I know but actually this is something which is quite deep and it, it infects a whole uh, series of attitudes I have towards the natural world. 
wider speaking for for the UK, for Britain, I always do wonder about this because having spent a couple of weeks sharing a bedroom with a hedgehog, they can smell and and they they are covered in prickles and they are pretty grumpy and solitary and they were notoriously covered in in fleas, but actually that's just a myth spread by ornithologists. You'll see the pattern which comes with this. You see, the ornithologists all think that birds are great, okay? They do, to the exclusion of everything else. Uh, Monomaniacal twitchers (laughs) which there are thousands around the place here. So so what they did is spread rumours about hedgehogs being covered in fleas just so that people wouldn't love them so much. But we saw through that. We recognised that actually people see hedgehogs covered in fleas because the hedgehog they're most likely to see is out in the daytime. And as hedgehogs are nocturnal, if they're out in the daytime, they're poorly and poorly hedgehogs have more parasites. Um, So yes, anyway, Apart from being smelly, grumpy, allegedly covered in fleas and and, covered in prickles, we do love hedgehogs, possibly because they play right into uh, the stereotype of the uh, British personality. (laughs) Maybe we are all smelly, grumpy and really just want to be left alone. Or perhaps, or perhaps we, we look to children's literature, we look to Beatrix Potter, but we look to the fact that we have gardens in a manner which which allows wildlife in and there isn't that much terrestrial wildlife left here which can get into our gardens that we like and the hedgehog is it. We actually have a moment of getting close to it and that's a moment when we can really begin to sow those seeds of connection with the natural world. In, in terms of that connection, you often tell people to think hedgehog, viewing the world differently through your eyes. And you just talked about, you know, getting on, on the ground of the lane and, and looking in, in Nigel's eyes. What does it mean to think hedgehog? Well, actually, it's quite practical. I'm afraid it's not a deeply sort of philosophical view. Uh, I noticed uh, in your list of, of wonderful interviewees, you've, you've, you've had um, Charles Foster, who's a friend of mine. And in fact, I, I've just finished reading a draft of his, his um, latest book, Being a Human. But you know, in, in Being a Beast, you know, he talked about you know, imagining life as. Uh, a different sort of animal. And we, we talked at length about imagining life as a hedgehog. But when I talk about thinking hedgehog, it's really practical. It's when you're talking to the land managers, it's when you're talking to gardeners, you're saying to them, you know, imagine you're a hedgehog in this environment, just for a moment, get down a bit lower, have a look at the obstacles, have a look at the pitfalls that there might be there. Have a look and see whether hedgehogs can actually get into uh, um, the garden. You know, Is there a hole 13 centimetres across, uh, which, which will allow the hedgehog to be able to get into your garden? Are there any obvious hazards lying around the place like open drains and uh, ponds without any slopes and when it comes to managing that space whether you you can actually leave some places to go wild uh, actually having bramble patches and log piles and compost heaps and the things so yes i'm afraid the think hedgehog is is a very much a practical injunction rather than the philosophical one You've said before that hedgerows were one of the best things that ever happened to hedgehogs in Great Britain. Will you please tell us some about the history of hedgerows and why they are such ideal habitat for hedgehogs to thrive in? Oh, you ask the best questions. I love hedgerows. <laughs> um, hedgerows are, are fantastic. I mean, so, so the hedgerow in, in this country, the, the definition of them basically is, is a um, woodland edge habitat. And for the hedgehog, obviously their name is closely related to the fact they are associated with the hedgerow. But before we turned up, before we started changing our landscape, the hedgehog was a creature of woodland edge. And the woodland edge would happen as the woodland gave out and you know, grassland gave in, as it were, where, wherever there might be any areas where there'd been um, uh, you know, a tree falling over, a little glade, that sort of thing. It would have probably not been a very common habitat feature. But humanity, uh, from about 10,000 years ago, we started with the Neolithic Revolution. We started uh, farming. We started to try to domesticate the land more effectively. 
And in that process, uh, we started to get to a point where we wanted to separate you know, horn from corn, I think is the phrase, yeah, but, but keeping livestock and our, our vegetable growing separated. And uh, so we can create barriers, but how best to create barriers? Well, actually, you clear a bunch of woodland and, and you leave a line of trees, um, you've got yourself a hedgerow. Over time, it was learnt that uh, these trees are amazing in, in this country in particular uh, because these trees evolved with megafauna, you know, the mega herbivores like, like uh, elephants and rhino because obviously this land used to have other things living on it. Uh, these were animals that would, would knock things down to be able to get to browse and if trees were the sort of trees which when knocked down they just died, it's not a very sustainable strategy. So over time you end up with the trees which can be knocked down but re-sprout from the damaged bits and from the roots you end up creating coppice and pollard based sort of trees and this means suddenly you've got a landscape which you can begin to manage you have a line of trees and when they get knocked down they sprout up and they bush out and they create these hedgerows so hedgerows became a way of determining ownership of land and keeping livestock apart from crops and uh, and it, the first ones that we definitely know of possibly were more stone-based and up in Dartmoor, uh, um, the wonderful place down in Devon, um, where we have the Dartmoor Reeves. The, these vague hints of linear features left on our landscape. Um, I, I find them utterly thrilling, uh, um, even though you can't see them most of the year because the vegetation's grown around them. But they are a reminder of early Bronze Age farmers who had put these lines out to demarcate land. And these were the beginning of this, this uh, the sort of fragmentation, the good fragmentation of our land. The hedgehogs must have loved it as the hedgerows sprung up. And then in the um, um, sort of late 17th through to the 18th century uh, and the early 19th century, we had the enclosures. This was a period of time for people that was really traumatic. It was the, the exclusion uh, from the land of many people uh, who had, had been brought up living on land in common and the land became privatized uh, and a lot of people who became very wealthy thanks to the slave trade came back to the UK and started to take ownership of the land using that wealth from slavery and this was the beginning of a, a dramatic change and the landscape became uh, far more portioned up with hedgerows uh, so for the hedgehogs point of view this was amazing because suddenly these landscape features were being put in place all over the countryside. And this would have seen, it, it peaked at um, uh, over, gosh, where are we? I think it's over 800,000 kilometers of hedge in the country. Now it's down to about 500,000 kilometers of hedge. And most of the hedge that we've got left is in very poor condition. Well, and then thanks to your, your book, Lionscapes, I had the delightful revelation that there are hedge competitions that you've, you've attended. Well, not just hedge competition, hedge laying, a very specific thing. You see, the the line of trees, shrubs as it were, or vegetation, will eventually grow into a line of trees, and that is not going to be a stock-proof barrier. So over time, it was learnt that you can chop these things down. You nearly chop them down, rather. You, you chop two-thirds of the way through the trunks and lay the trees 
down and you start, you make little nicks along it for the uh, shoots to grow up along it. And then every county and sub-counties in the country, people were creating different ways of doing it because they had different sorts of livestock needs, perhaps. But they would weave them in different ways. And there is still this tradition. The competitions, the British hedge laying championships are fantastic. I mean, it, this is a very niche thing to suggest people come to if we're ever allowed to go on holiday to other places again. But um, a very niche thing to do. But my goodness me, if you come at the same time as the National Hedge Laying Championships, it's amazing. It really is amazing. I definitely want to coordinate my next trip. That sounds incredible. <laughs> Your fascinating recent book, Lionscapes, explains how you came to be focused through the studying of these hedges and hedgehogs on the consequences of man-made lines more broadly both positive consequences, like the incredible habitat that these hedges are making, as well as negative ones in terms of fragmentation of habitat and much more. Will you please tell us first what a lionscape is for anyone who hasn't had the pleasure of reading your book yet and why focusing on them is so important? Well, a, a lionscape is a neologism, which I must thank my friend Robin Bennett for. I, I'd had the, the idea of the book. I'd got uh, the book commissioned under the temporary working title of The Natural History of Anthropogenic Linear Features, which I, I, <laughs> I was actually quite happy with because you know what? It says what it does in the tin. Um, so it was, it, was a, it was a working title. And um, sitting around uh, uh, the kitchen table with Robin and his wife, Megan, and we were chatting about the festival that they run and I run a stage at and working out what we're going to do next year. And I was moaning then about this problem I'd got because I couldn't think of a phrase, a word, a, a title for this book. And Robin's a songwriter, a brilliant musician, but he just, he just said, oh, wait a minute. And, and he just sat there quietly and I was chatting away with his wife. And then about five minutes later, he just said, Linescapes. And this, this moment of absolute, I mean, why on earth? Had I not thought of that? I mean, it's ridiculous. I was so <laughs> cross myself. Anyway, so the basic conceit of the book is our landscape is, when you, when you look at any landscape, uh, I mean, in fact, the, the USA, uh, perhaps most famously in the entire world, has been gridded up. Mm -hmm. And there are these linear features all the way across it. In the UK, our linear features started with you know, the, the reeves and, and the hedgerows, the dry stone walls. Uh, we've got the, the amazing uh, network of ditches and drains which have released so much land for farming and are now being re-wetted. Uh, then we've got the, the canals, which are a fantastic network, which briefly were the, you know, the highways of the country, followed by railways and then roads and pylons and electricity cables. Each of these linear features has an impact on the ability of natural history, or wildlife, I should say, to be able to thrive or not. And it was an opportunity to explore the complexities of habitat fragmentation and the potential for habitat connection and, most importantly, reconnection. Because I, I see these, these are temporary. These are glitches. These are things we can overcome. And these are things which we can actually reintegrate into a much more connected landscape. Mm -hmm. And and you write the the irony is that the lines we have built to connect so roads have become the most effective agents of fragmentation, while the lines we built to fragment hedges, walls, ditches, dikes have become the most effective agents of connections. Getting back to the the hedgerows, there are really these incredible linear ecosystems that are host to an amazing array of biodiversity. Can you describe some of the life that? lives in and depends on these hedges? Well, I mean, the example, uh, one of the examples I, I give in Lionscapes is of this stretch of hedgerow in Devon. I, I keep 
going back to Devon. Partly it's because any excuse to go to the place I seem to feel most at home. So my research is warped in that direction. But um, there's a feel of a, a stretch of hedgerow there, which was studied for two years. And the owner of the land, the farmer, who's also an ecologist, he counted every single species of plant, fungi, and animal that he could see uh, living on or in the hedgerow. He didn't count the things which he needed a microscope to be able to speciate. He didn't count the things which he never actually saw on or in it. So there was a tawny owl. Undoubtedly, the tawny owl would have landed on the hedge at some point, but he never saw it, didn't count it. Um, you know, that sort of thing. So he's, he was very scrupulous. And in the space of two years, um, it was over 2,000 species he found. And it was a particularly dry couple of years, so the fungal fruiting bodies, which would have erupted, uh, were far diminished than perhaps in more, more wet years. It's a bit of a over-tired cliche, but you know, the rainforest idea, yeah, that really rich environment. We've created, with our hedgerows, this wonderful dynamic mix of edge and shelter, of the woodland edge, of that bit. It's like all habitats, it's like the seashore. Yeah, you get the great richness in these areas of transition, these, these points of change. Uh, and the hedgerow is a really effective version of that. And they allow wildlife not only to travel along it, which is how I've always, well, I began to study them from the point of view of the hedgehog. You know, the hedgehog uses them to get through the landscape. You put a hedgehog in the middle of a field, it will go to the edge and then walk along the edge being an edge specialist. But they also are habitats in their own right. Not only will the hedgehog make its nest you know, deep inside the hedgerow, but hedgehog food, obviously. Hedgehog food, the insect life, the, the invertebrate life that hedgehogs rely upon, uh, will thrive in that sort of environment. You've got you know, the light, the bright sunshine, and you've got the dark shelter, all in one wonderful, neat habitat. And hedges are, of course, very different than walls and more solid fences that came and replaced them. You talk about how the death of the hedge in some ways occurred with the creation of and the invention of barbed wire in the United States in the late 1800s. And now we see certainly in the U.S. at the Mexico border, the border wall that's been constructed there taking a terrible toll on wildlife. And you discuss in your book about how border walls intended to prevent refugees in Europe are also likely having a, a major toll on, on wild animals as well. But if walls are designed well, and you describe rock walls, and in particular, a phenomenon called smoots, which I'm hoping you'll explain to us, they can actually support much life too. What is a smoot and what sort of life could a rock wall potentially help thrive? Well, well first of all, I mean, I, I, it may just not be something which is used, um, it must be used in, in the United States, but um, uh, the it idea... Should of a, be. <laughs> no, I think you know, the dry, first of all, the dry stone wall. So, so rather, mm. I mean, just, yeah, it, it may be that's something you would just call a rock wall, but there's, there's again, like there is with the, the hedge laying championships, there's dry, dry stone walling championships too, and all sorts <laughs> of different varieties and styles from around the country. There's one, the, 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 my Trevor Rag, who was a one-time winner of this award, he said, yeah, you could drop him in any part of the country and take off his blindfold and put him in front of a wall, and he could tell you which part of the country he, you were in because of the way they had made their dry stone walls. And a dry stone wall is very simply a wall made by stacking stones. It's dry. It hasn't got mortar holding things together. And it's an art, a really brilliant art form. I have tried doing this. I mean, I've tried laying hedges slightly more expertly than I tried uh, dry stone walling. My dry stone walling was appalling. 
It's like a, a, a mammoth three-dimensional jigsaw trying to get the maximum sort of effect of, of creating a stock-proof barrier with, with the minimum number of stones and making sure that it's robust enough so that you know, a cow leaning against it isn't going to cause the entire thing to topple. So that's the heart of this thing. And those walls, when done properly, have got this spaces between the blocks. Because it's not mortared, there is space in there. And that space allows the little things to get in. And sometimes the little things get in and maybe get quite large. Certainly the size of some of the toads that Trevor had pulled out from the middle of these walls uh, suggested they had gone in much smaller and had found a big <laughs> space, sat in there and just ate the insects which came towards <laughs> it. And, you know. But you know, so, so they are, they are a, a fantastic home for wildlife life and similarly a corridor too uh, but the smoot you mentioned the smoot I, I mean i just love the word it's if you if you have a very effective wall like this and you have a fantastically efficient uh, and very strong travelers such as badgers now the european badgers are a different species to yours but the european badger will undermine this sort of obstacle and so you build a smoot in to allow the badger through because otherwise it will make a hole underneath it the wall will topple down but then Trevor had taken this to a few extra steps, and it's like, well, he's created hedgehog smoots, wall holes in the wall, so that hedgehogs can get through. When people having dry stone walling put around their garden, yeah, you know, he leaves a little hedgehog smoot. And and this, I mean, actually, you know, the smooting has been around, and and the word smoot, it, it, there are many different versions of that word because yeah, you know, this is just from one part of Derbyshire, and there will be names for this hole in a wall, uh, which will be linked to to the dialects all over the country. But some of it was very specifically designed for, for hunting. So, so for example, uh, you've got rabbits uh, in a field and you leave a smoot open um, and you encourage the rabbits to keep using the smoot. And then one day what you do is you put a big scare up in the field, but you've got a net on the other side of the hole. And so the rabbits run into, run into the net. So they, they, they are, have, have different effects. And, and actually, obviously, originally sheep smoots you want to be able to uh, have an opening in, in in the wall to be able to drive your sheep through uh, one at a time to be able to check them anyway okay so when you've come over for the national hedge lane championships see if you can stay on for the national dry stone walling championships too it, it's this stuff is is very very niche but it's great fun i was gonna say i really hope they're in back-to-back -back weeks so i can just make it a <laughs> one and done trip that's amazing these these smoots and and the the ways that people are are making you know of, of course you know not not all as Rebecca was just mentioning not all barriers in fact many of them have really catastrophic impacts on wildlife whether it's roadkill or, or blocking the continuity of habitat and what's been so incredible about your work is the way that you've been able to come up with visions for rethinking and recrafting the ways that we sort of divide and, and line and fragment our land to make them more amenable to, to species that, that depend on them. So for example, you're leading a national campaign to make hedgehog highways a legal requirement for new housing developments. You had set up a change.org petition that, that garnered almost a million signatures. Will you tell us about this campaign and the impacts that it's had so far? Oh, I mean, it's, it's still running. So we're at 977,000 uh, plus a bit um, signatures, want to get to a million. Um, that, well, that I was signed a... on yesterday. Oh, you star. So, <laughs> this is, so this petition is a really interesting, it was an interesting moment for me. I'm a, I'm a bit of a blunderbuss when it comes to these things. It's a case of just charging in there. And when change.org got in touch with me and they said, we want to do a petition about hedgehogs, it, they, they sprang this idea on me. And um, they said, what would you like to do? 
to see hedgehogs returned to their former glory? What would you ask for? And I was saying, well, this is brilliant. Okay, so I want a petition calling for the dismantling of industrial capitalism and the replacing of it with something nicer. And, and yeah, they kind of made that noise, but they were more nervous. And um, they, they, were, um, they were very much of a, no. <laughs> and so we, we, we were talking back and forth. And in the end, uh, you know, I, I kept suggesting ideas about you know, eco-ducts across motorways and all sorts of things. And eventually we, we got to the point of, okay, the reality is, if you want to make a hole in your fence, once you've moved into a new house, it's hard work. Um, the concrete gravel boards or whatever, you, know, you need to have some degree of DIY skills and tools. And actually, it's much easier if the hole is there already. And if you really don't want the hole, you can put a brick in front of it uh, or a plant pot in front of it. If you've got a, a miniature dachshund or a small tortoise, maybe. You know, excuses, uh, there aren't many to justify this. And so if we could then persuade the government to change the planning law to uh, force developers to build these things in the first place, that'd be great. And so I began this petition partly spurred on by the thought that um, every time I write an update, of which there have been about 100 so far, um, they would go to everybody who, who signed up. And in fact, that's what Change.org sort of used as their pressure. They said, you know, how many people read your blog? And I was going, that's really unfair. Um, so <laughs> we, we got to 10,000 signatures and I was thinking, I quite like this. Uh, and then we got to 100,000 signatures and I was actually getting quite excited. At half a million signatures, I got to meet the housing minister and I got to meet one of the, the boss of one of the biggest developers in the country. And uh, then it sort of carried on growing you know, more slowly at times. Um, and then we got to a point when our government went into uh, one of those uh, occasional moments of paroxysm and change and we got um we got England Trump uh take over with the delightful Boris Johnson and uh, or was it Britain Trump I can't remember what it was your um uh, former leader once described him as and uh, and so he as he stepped in it meant all of the ministerial posts were going to get juggled around and on the last day possible the then the secretary of state for for development and housing changed the national planning policy framework to include a paragraph which had as one part of it the guidance to have hedgehog highways built in as a standard. And that was almost a moment of extreme delight. It was almost a victory. But unfortunately, the teeth had been removed from the legislation, so it was guidance. So I kept the petition open, wanting to take this on to the point where we change this so it is absolutely set in stone, obviously, with stone with a smoot. And um, the... <laughs> Uh, but we went straight from um, we went straight from that election into uh, a Brexit hiatus where nothing else happened, and straight from that in, into COVID. And so government hasn't really been open to much else since then. So what I'm doing is basically waiting until we get to the million, and then and you know you, as you've proved you can sign from from the United States because you love hedgehogs too. And if you had any European wild hedgehogs over there, you would understand quite how special they are. But um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a real feeling of, of uh, delight for me because it's a sort of daily confirmation about the amount that people really care. And off the back of that, the, the management of communications on change.org is, is, is not very straightforward. And so I set up a, a Facebook group, a Hedgehog Highways Facebook group, which is now over 17,000 very active members. And uh, it, it's not about pet hedgehogs. It's not about a whole bunch of stuff. It's about looking after hedgehogs in our garden environment. And, and thank goodness for my um, wonderful moderators, because it's, I hadn't realized quite how active and busy this, this group of people were going to be. <laughs> 
There's a debate that you reference in your book and that you referenced in your uh, just now in your communications with the change.org folks about the role that capitalism could or should play in conservation and protecting wild animals. But this advocacy efforts and some of the other advocacy efforts have focused on getting individuals in urban areas engaged in trying to save hedgehogs and protect the environment and improve and connect habitat through grassroots power and citizen science and individual action. Whereas the hedgehogs also then in in rural areas in particular face really tremendous threats from industrial agriculture, large agriculture corporations and capitalism forces more broadly. Was that an intentional choice on your part to focus on on urban areas and what individuals can do in cities for hedgehogs versus trying to tackle the broader forces affecting them in much of the rest of the country? Well, that is, I mean, again, an absolutely brilliant question. It was more to do with what can individuals actually do themselves. And yes, they can form part of a band of people who want to see the world modeled in a different way. And please continue that striving work. But there is also a real desire to try and step in and help. And so it can leave people feeling utterly disempowered. If you say, fine, well, then just stop eating meat and only eat organic vegetables, that will help hedgehogs. But it's like, well, in the bigger scheme, you know, you don't really see that level of connection. Yes, do those things, please. But actually, practically on the ground, how are we best going to help hedgehogs is how the individuals themselves can make a difference. And I suppose what I do, and I, to be honest, I do use the hedgehog quite mercilessly uh, for this, is I love wildlife. I love nature. I, I really do. Uh, and, and it's not exclusively hedgehog. And I want people to feel similarly about this. And I want people to see the hedgehog as this stepping stone. Once they realized that if you can let the hedgehog into your garden and you've made your garden hedgehog friendly, once you've realized that you've done this, you are actually helping a whole host of other wildlife. That's fantastic. It's part of the ecosystem. But we also have our sort of social ecosystem where you begin to see, wait a minute, yeah, if the powers that be are determining that we shall have industrialized agriculture, which is based very heavily on, on, on uh, chemical inputs, which are extremely damaging to invertebrate life, which happen to be the food of hedgehogs and toads and farmland birds and bats and all of these other creatures. If that's a drive which is happening, maybe we should start to look at trying to change things there. If our desire to eat meat on a daily basis, more than you know, two or three times a day, some people, that's driving this this demand for cheap meat and is demand, driving the spreading of, of animal feed as the principal use of vast, vast areas of this country. Um, it's not being grown to feed us, it's being grown to feed animals, to, to feed those who want to eat meat. If we can begin to see these connections, then we can begin to see about really fundamental change. I think going into many audiences, uh, yeah, like yeah, I joke about the idea of getting change.org to call for a dismantling of industrial capitalism. Yeah, if, you, if you do that to the vast majority of people in this country, you're, you're going to scare the horses. You know, they're not going to come to you. They're not going to listen. You begin that conversation with, Hedgehogs are cute. Hedgehogs are lovely. Here's something small you can do to help hedgehogs. And then along the way, you build on that. Then I really believe you can begin to seed a sequence of changes, which may, yeah, it may be just one in a hundred people, um, then goes, you know what, actually, I'm going to stop eating animals. And, uh, you know, what? I'm actually going to see about trying to find a better way of living. That's what I really hope to be able to achieve. I'm not a politician. I'm not a leader. I just want people 
to begin to think a little bit more deeply about ecology. And I believe the inevitable consequence of thinking more deeply about ecology is you have to challenge the entire notion of industrial capitalism, which is based entirely on uh, the demand on us to consume more to keep the machine rolling. And, and it is not it really isn't rocket science to recognize that we live on a finite planet with finite resources and finite places to put rubbish. And uh, we are uh, exceeding in every one of those things we should be doing, um, in particular in the UK, in particular in the United States. You know, we are using and abusing the planet in a way which is staggering. So, small things to start with. Mm -hmm. Find your hedgehog, love your hedgehog. <laughs> and use that as as the beginning of an entire transformation of the way you look at the world. Yeah, this idea of connectedness is is so powerfully articulated in in your books, especially in in landscapes, um, where it sort of draws these parallels not just between habitat connection, but also about people's connections with with, with the world around them. And as you mentioned, uh, how people's strong feelings towards hedgehogs can be sort of that gateway to stronger connections with the broader world. But of course, you know, there are also a lot of contradictions inherent in connectedness that you talk about in your book, as, as we already mentioned, lines that connect people, divide habitats, um, hedges that block off animals and, and livestock, support wildlife. But there also seems to be another contradiction that we've all been experiencing this year, which is that we're far less connected to each other. But in that process, a lot of people have been turning to nature to find that lost or postponed intimacy. How have people responded to the Hedgehog Highway efforts during the pandemic? Has the pandemic, as you've seen, impacted that connectedness with the world around us or, or people's you know, ability to see and grow close with the natural world? Well, I mean, that's an interesting series of, of bits in there. Uh, going back to the at the beginning of, the, uh, of COVID just over a year ago, I, I find storing my photographs on my computer, a really wonderful way of, you go, what was I doing a year ago? And sometimes it'll spit up and say, this is what you're doing a year ago. And so a year ago today, I went to some woodlands about a five mile cycle ride away with my son and my wife. And we sat in a bluebell wood in glorious sunshine. Um, and my son was wearing a tiger onesie. He seemed to wear a tiger onesie the entire <laughs> lockdown. Uh, luckily, we had two of them. Um, so, and, and I made... Me too. Yeah, good. I'm very pleased to hear it. Um, and um, actually, what I need to do is source adult tiger onesies for him now because he's, he's grown enormously. And at the moment, every time I um, I'm start looking for things like that, I end up in the furry world. And I'm just... I'm, I don't think I'm ready for that. Anyway, uh, leaving that aside, we, you know, those points for me during the sort of the fear of the early pandemic and the fear of our lockdown uh, when we were having a prescription you could be out for an hour a day to get some fresh air and uh, some exercise and i found those moments strangely delightful because the transformation of of our landscape i could cycle around oxford without terror which is a rare thing to be able to do there were no cars on the roads there were no planes in the sky you could hear the birds sing and it was absolutely transformed and i recognizing there were people having the most hideous of times recognizing that our, uh, our frontline services were working so hard to keep the machine of society going and to keep people fit and well as they could in hospital. I recognize all of that, but for me, selfishly, personally, it was gorgeous. 
so that side of our, our points of connection. I know a lot of people had those moments, even if it was just in their gardens, if they were lucky enough to have one, of being able to spend time seeing spring come and spring turn into summer. So from the point of view of my campaigning and getting people engaged, what I found is that in the last year, the amount of sort of traffic the Facebook group has been having, for example, is staggering because it was people having the time in their gardens to be able to think a little bit more about what they could do. Uh, and I was just, you know, it's amazing, absolutely delightful uh, that people out there are doing things. And on top of that, because there are developers carry on developing, whether there's a pandemic or not, uh, the, the people who live in villages being affected by housing developments now have learned, because I've been showing and, and, and sort of broadcasting these examples, that individuals themselves can just make a connection with the developer and say, hey, how about doing this for hedgehogs? We haven't got to the point where planning law has been changed and been given teeth so that the hedgehogs have get the highways, but developers realize it costs you know, 50 pence more per house to put in a hedgehog highway. Uh, that, that's not going to break the bank. It's not going to affect your bottom line, and it is going to increase your popularity. Now, I don't want these developers to suddenly think they've got um, a greenwash opportunity. I'm still going to sit in front of bulldozers if I need to when the developments are inappropriate. But if they are going ahead and they are necessary and proven to be necessary, then, okay, do this. Do it without being forced to by the law. Do it because you know it's the right thing. One of the things that I found so moving and striking about your writing is that it points out and makes so clear again and again how all of these small sort of scraps of habitat, if you will, you know, people's gardens, roadsides, uh, forgotten areas under power lines matter profoundly and will matter even more profoundly as habitat is broken up and transformed and lost. You point out, for instance, how 97% of wildflower meadows in Britain have been destroyed since World War II. And so, you know, areas along roadsides are, are refuges for what was once commonplace across the country. And I think this is particularly relevant and important now everywhere, but in the United States too, where climate change has sort of taken a front and center focus and uh, the Biden administration is now trying to push through a new big infrastructure bill. But habitat fragmentation is an issue and biodiversity, and as you say, even more so than biodiversity, bioabundance is still really overlooked often. And so I'm curious if you can tell us about what your vision is for reconnecting fragmented habitats more broadly that you lay out in landscapes, which I found tremendously exciting, where you discuss, for instance, the enormous potential of all of this land under power lines, along train tracks, along roadsides, in people's gardens, and how we could try to use that land that we do have control of to, to make it maximally useful and, and, and helpful to wild animals. Um, again, very, very interesting. It, it's, uh, I, feel I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, which is a slight disappointment. Um, interestingly, you mentioned the United States and, and, and infrastructure developments there. I, I, there's one distinct difference I sort of, I'm imagining. I know the United States very poorly. I, I've, I've done a few work trips there, but, but very little. But my impression is of the enormity of the space. And in the UK, we don't have that, uh, which means that our fragmentation has the effect, is a much more profound effect in that we are, are creating these pockets of good habitat in a very, very developed landscape. You've got the big open spaces, but that is probably revealing more of my ignorance of sort of suburban uh, America than, than, than I should like to be displaying. But yes, I, I, 
the work in Lionscapes was partly, uh, sort of, I was excited by, uh, the discovery of the fact that there are people looking at what's known as the soft estate. So that's the road verges, that is, as you described, the areas underneath the power lines, the areas alongside the railway tracks, the areas beside canals. This soft estate is a habitat which, in all instances, has to be managed. And my, my vision, my hope is that we get this, this level of management being done with wildlife in mind. It can't be done with all wildlife in mind. We can't have um, you know, enormous trees lining our railway lines because if the trees fall, you cause a catastrophe. It's got to be managed habitat, but at least manage it in a way which, which will benefit uh, wildlife, which is special. Uh, and manage it in such a way that will allow the connections to take place between you know, points A and points B. And then within our garden habitats, yes, most people, in, well, not most people, I exaggerate. A lot of people love their bird life and they attract birds in actively. They put out bird feeders and that's amazing because you've got this diurnal species which flitters around the place, sings beautifully and you've got it in your garden. I have got uh, a, a robin nest with young, uh, well actually they've just fledged in my back garden and in my front garden. They're in little scraps of land but they're in both of those and some of my greatest wildlife pleasures have actually come with my robin, little robin redbreast, because I've managed to train them on two occasions to feed from my hand. So getting a moment of connection, almost as amazing as you get with a hedgehog, but don't tell the hedgehogs. Um, but, but we get these moments of, of having wildlife in our gardens. And, and you know, obviously my great push is to don't be seduced by the things that can fly. <laughs> Remember that there's a whole bunch of stuff which can't. And in particular, obviously, the hedgehogs. So those hedgehog highways, the little holes in the fences, this giving the capacity to move through the environment and then out into the wider environment, which again, one hopes to get managed with wildlife in mind. So I, I don't just do you know, working with gardeners and working with people who own, own their own homes. Um, you know, I have I run workshops for the people who who manage the campuses of the universities, for the people who do the mowing for our local councils. I, I, I will sit with and talk with endlessly uh, um, about you know, the reasons why we should care about hedgehogs and the way that we can actually do things to help hedgehogs. And, and so, yeah, this is absolutely at the heart of it because it goes to the bigger overall picture about ecology. It's to do with that interconnectedness. It's to do with the fact that you know, we are part of an ecosystem. Um, we are... Too often we think of ourselves in that, that hideous sort of human exceptionalism. We think of nature and conservation with an uh, anthropocentric view. We, we are, go, well, what is it that the hedgehog has ever done for us? And I, I get most talks I give, uh, or used to give, uh, I, I would have this question. You know, well, what is it? What would happen to us if we didn't have hedgehogs anymore? So I've actually taken, um, um, probably breaching all sorts of copyright rules, a still grab from a Monty Python film. And uh, what have the hedgehogs ever done for us? Being the obvious way into that. And um, it's really fascinating to actually start to get people to recognise that just because it's not our species, it also has a right to live. And... I, I've, perhaps even more threatening than the idea of dismantling industrial capitalism is the idea that we can start to dismantle the idea of human exceptionalism. And um, I love it because I've got an audience of 30, 80-year-old women from the Women's Institute in a small town or village in Oxfordshire. And I know that I'm going to get a great big piece of cake at the end of it, and I'm really pleased with that. And I'm giving them stuff which is really heavy, really big ideas to think about. 
Uh, but I think it's important because we can begin to start to see a deeper and better understanding of what ecology really means if we recognize that it's not a pyramid with us, us at the top. Are you familiar with the poem The Mower by Philip Larkin? Oh, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, well, I love this poem. I came across it recently. and It's short, so I'm just going to read it in case anyone's not familiar with it. Um, and then I have a, a question for you about it. So this is The Mower by Philip Larkin. The mower stalled twice. Kneeling, I found a hedgehog jammed up against the blades. Killed, it had been in the long grass. I had seen it before and even fed it once. Now I had mauled its unobtrusive world unmendably. Burial was no help. Next morning, I got up, and it did not. The first day after a death, the new absence is always the same. We should be careful of each other. We should be kind while there is still time. And I was so happy to come across that poem this weekend when we were preparing for the podcast because it struck me as very relevant to your work because in many ways, the hedgehog, you know, to join a hedgehog highway campaign or to take, make the effort to improve the garden and to, to make the effort to ensure that the power lines are safe for birds and so forth is, is, I feel like, doing exactly what Philip Larkin is calling for at the end, which is to say that we absolutely have the power to be kind to these creatures and we should seize it. And so anyway, so I just wanted to read that and say thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for the inspiring message and, and all you've done to make that happen and, and to spread that inspiration. Well, just, I mean, that Philip Larkin poem, I mean, I, I love... I love that end bit. I mean, we, we should be kind while there is still time. It is one of the most powerful and central messages. And it's kind, not just for our own kind. I think that's really crucial. And I, I, yeah, I'm, there has been so much deep and wonderful stuff done about hedgehogs. It's one of the delights I have with the animal. Actually, I've written a book all about the iconography of hedgehogs, uh, um, which is because there is so much out there uh, which ties hedgehogs into deeper philosophical thought, whether you're looking at the foxes and hedgehogs of the ideas of Isaiah Berlin building on the um, ancient Greek poet um, Archilochus, um, or you're looking at uh, Schopenhauer's views of, of you know, the hedgehog's dilemma, which interestingly, is the proper title of my first book, The Hedgehog's Dilemma. And my absolute thanks to Bloomsbury in the United States of America for buying the book and giving it its proper title, because in the UK they called it a prickly affair. So I, I find that The Hedgehog, and, and your choice of the Larkin poem is great, because it gives you, again, people are drawn into it because of the sympathy for the animal. Uh, yet the message it's carrying is so much deeper than, than it might initially begin with. And there is a comic poet in, a comic is that fair? A poet in the UK called Pam Ayres. And um, she wrote a short book of a poem called The Last Hedgehog. Uh, and in this, she manages to capture the entirety of my campaigning lectures in, in one short poem. And, and I find her being one of, I mean, she's everybody's favourite aunt, is how I always look at her. And it's a, a uh, she ends the poem, and I think I should hit you back. Um, yes, please. So I, I could do you the whole poem if you want. It's not that long. Sure. Yeah, that'd be so, great. Okay. The pictures are sweet, but you don't get those. So farewell, farewell for what it's worth from the final hedgehog left on earth. Cousin Henry, young and bright, went up in flames on bonfire night. And poor old grandpa, fast asleep, was stabbed to death in a compost heap. My uncle, in one playful bound, fell in a swimming pool and drowned. My aunt was old, her eyes were dimmed, but all the same she wound up strimmed. You didn't look, you didn't see, and there she goes, an amputee. If in your fence you'd made a space, we could have moved from place to place, have found a gal, paid our respects, had some cautious hedgehog sex. 
and in a cosy pile of logs, produced a nest of little hogs. From now on, as you pull the drapes, you'll see no round familiar shapes. Nevermore, from dusk till dawn, will we eat slugs on your lawn. So little gratitude you've shown, from now on, you can eat your own. Drowned in rubbish, drowned in junk, that's why our population's shrunk. You threw down stuff you couldn't use, the plastic rings from packs of booze, polluted, poisoned, burned and mowed, and ran us over on the road. If you'd been a hedgehog's friend, you'd give your pond a shallow end. You'd leave a drink when gardens fried, you'd cover drains where creatures died, where walls are vertical and steep, and starving hedgehogs fall asleep. Like the owl which hunts the mouse, like swifts returning to a house, we fit like interlocking rings, neatly in the scheme of things. This is the truth. These are the facts. The whole of nature interacts. And so, farewell for what it's worth from the final hedgehog left on earth, in garden netting tightly wound. I have no hope of being found. Some curtain call, some final bow. You crocodiles. Start crying now. And so Pam is, I mean, she's probably 80 now. Um, she'll, hopefully, I'm not overstating that. And I was launching a big campaigning event in Oxford. And I wrote to her and just said, is there any chance you could come along and, and just be a, a voice and, and say nice things about me? And she turned up and there was, this, it was 300 sort of scientists and ecologists and conservationists. And there was a bit of a, oh, she's so sweet. And she got up and she made everybody laugh. And then she recited that poem and she reduced people to tears. Because it's so unexpected and because it's so unexpected coming from her. In fact, she's very much like the hedgehog. You've got something which is sweet, something which is cute, which is, oh, hedgehogs are so lovely. Yet there is something much deeper in there, a deeper message and a deeper way of looking at the world, which the hedgehogs reveal to us in the same way that, that Pam Ayres did. Yeah, that that was an absolute gut punch. Thank you for for sharing that, and we'll definitely be sure to check Pam Ayers out and, and her other works. Um, so very very much appreciate you doing that reading. And and on recommendations, we really like to ask our guests what are some works that have impacted you and that have left an impression and and, and it's given you inspiration, whether it's poetry or books or, or films. Are there any? Are there a couple that you could recommend? Oh my God, how long is, how long have we got? Um, it's, I love reading and I love books. But in terms of inspiration, uh, my first three crushes came one after the other. And the first ever crush was actually the um, Maid Marian, the Disney cartoon version of Robin Hood. And Maid Marian was this extremely attractive fox. I was probably about 10 at the time. Anyway, that was my first crush. And uh, then, then, there was, then there was Kate Bush, obviously. But uh, uh, my third crush was, was Jane Goodall the woman who studied chimpanzees with such uh, amazing detail and in-depth insight uh, and, and running counter to the very much the sort of central sort of scientific paradigm of, of pure objectivity and don't you dare give them names. Because what she did, and the thing which I value from her work so much, is that she told stories about what she was doing in a way that you wanted to read them. And in the process of reading them, you became sucked into her world. So, so she absolutely got me thinking about the idea of studying the natural world, but actually doing so in a manner which, which drew people in, um, rather than locking yourself away in an ivory tower and having two and a half people read your PhD thesis, and that includes your parents and the examining people. Why not actually spread your word wider? 
So, so for, that was absolute inspiration. In the UK, we have a, a wonderful bunch of people who set up a thing called New Networks for Nature. And there is a Beena's groundswell of sort of nature writing over the years. But this is, it was a lot of the people setting this up were largely ornithologists to begin with. But, you know, uh, eventually the true heroes of the day came through <laughs> with their hedgehoggy talk. So I find that gathering of people at the New Networks for Nature, which includes you know, the writers like, like Miriam Darlington and her amazing work on otters and owls, and it includes poets, and it includes musicians. Sam Lee. Oh, my goodness. Here we go. Here's a, a discovery for you. Um, the, the musician Sam Lee. He has written, he's just written a book about nightingales I haven't read yet. But his uh, previous album, Old Wow, is full of nature, love, and music. And, and he goes out and he sings with nightingales. Beautiful stuff and, and really to be recommended. And... If I was to suggest to you somebody to read, well, you see, you've already had Rob McFarlane on the program. I mean, he's one of my favourite writers. Jay Griffiths. Jay is wonderful. Um, she wrote a book called Pip Pip. It's her first book, a sideways look at time. And uh, but it's her book Wild, which, which particularly did it for me. I've known her for years, and so I'm biased because I'm a friend. But her writing is another way. It's it's deep writing. She loves playing with language. So it's poetic. Uh, it's very rich. Um, one friend of mine who likes to read a book a day after about 50 pages threw it across the room. And I realized that's because her, her work is like a, a dish of, of, of tiramisu. Yeah, you, you would have a piece of that and then let it digest. You don't <laughs> eat an entire bowl of it at one go. So yes, I, I, but no, I could go on and on about all the people I've, I've had the pleasure of reviewing books of and um, it would be we could fill the program with that, actually. Well, thank you for sharing those. And certainly, you know, you mentioned Jane Goodall and her inspiration in terms of her ability to tell stories. And I would say that has certainly been reflected in, in your own work and your own career. It, it was just incredible to read all the stories you've told about your relationship with hedgehogs and getting out into the world and creating spaces for them and the landscapes that you've you've seen and experienced across Britain. So really can't recommend your books enough and your stories are so powerful. So thank you for for all of those. Well, Jennifer and, and Viveka, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to me. It, you know, I spend a lot of time sat in my shed. Uh, and so it's, it's really quite nice to feel that I'm um, chatting to people on the other side of the Atlantic. You Warwick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, too, to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Yu e. Warwick and his work. Thanks for listening.